Welcome to the First NAS Podcast. This week in Lessons from Abraham, Pastor Paul is preaching from Genesis chapter 18 with the title of Extreme Intercession. Let's listen in as he talks about a discussion with Abraham and God. I'm in Genesis chapter 18, if you'd like to follow along with me where I am. I wanted to just touch on something that's happening in a few weeks in, on August 20th, so it's a ways out still. August 20th will be our Serve Sunday. Uh, that's a Sunday that every year we take a week off of doing this, of gathering together in the sanctuary, and we gather outside of the sanctuary, usually in smaller groups, and we serve people in our community. We will begin that Sunday at Beachview Park in Clarkston, worshiping with some of our brothers and sisters, other congregations from the valley, and so we'll begin over there, and then we'll break up and we'll do a handful of projects. This is the call for projects. If you know folks who would, would benefit from the church helping them, we want to try to be outside of the walls of the church, so uh, we, um, we want to try to help folks that maybe aren't connected with the, with the congregation, but we'd be glad to help if you have friends, loved ones, neighbors that, that just need, need a hand with a project. Uh, if you see a spot in town where graffiti is driving you crazy and you want to get permission from the landowner to paint over it, if you know somewhere where there's trash that we could pick up, let us know in the church office. We'll put together a few projects so that we have things to do. I wanted to just say thank you. We have so many people. It takes a village, right? It takes a village. We have so many people who do so many things in the life of our church uh, week in and week out. And if I started to list people, I would, I would quickly start forgetting people. Uh, but I wanted to just uh, say a special thank you to Terry Beatles and to John Young because they're, if there is green grass on this property, it is because of those two gentlemen. There, there are a couple of other people who have come by here and there and who are helping, and thank you. Uh, but uh, thank you. As, if you believe what's written in the newspaper, I was reading in the newspaper, we're about to be able to water. Wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, and so there probably are some places around this property that aren't going to be green until... 2025 after this year. But if there are places that are green, thank you to, to Terry and John for doing that. I also wanted to say, yes. I also have Doug Axe on my list because uh, he's one of my favorite outdoor workers who uh, has made the front of our church look, uh, the, the bushes and shrubs and all of that. Uh, it's uh, thanks to, to his like morning after morning after morning. Thank you, Doug. And then a quick thank you to uh, everyone who donated and gave to the yard sale for the youth. The last number, or the number that I, I am aware of uh, for youth yard sale is like a little bit mind-blowing. Uh, what I heard, I, I was in the room when the total was, was calculated, uh, is $5,400. Uh, and I don't think that includes everything. So if you gave anything to the youth yard sale, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you helped haul stuff over, if you helped uh, by coming by and buying teens, great job. 
you don't have to pay for camp this year. So that's pretty sweet. Uh, well, next year. <laughs> All right. I'm in Genesis 18 today. We live in a world that kind of constantly is putting our faith in God to the test. It's so easy in, in the world we live in to just be consumed by the physical, right? Even the good things, the physical. Like, it's easy to be consumed with friends and family and the, things, the fun things we do with friends and family. Those are good things. But it's really easy to get one-track thinking when it comes to, oh, uh, our nest egg, you know, like that, that we're saving away for, for the future, or the hobby du jour. Uh, it's really easy to get one-track thinking about the drama at work and all that's going on there. And those things aren't all bad, right? It's, uh, it, as believers, we might even be the type of people who try to bring Christ into the drama at work, right? It's not, those things aren't necessarily bad just because they aren't Jesus. But those things can make us forget that we serve and love uh, and want to hear from a living God who is active in our world. We, we, can, we can easily be pulled away from our faith, get our attention kind of off our faith by those, those things that we can touch, feel, and see, and hear, and smell, and taste, those things that, that are observable. They, they often make it so that our faith takes a back seat to what those things are doing. And in our world, we're, we're surrounded by people who say those physical things, the things that, that they can observe, they're all there is. And they are important enough. They are, they are, there is no reason to believe in anything else than what you can touch, see, and feel, and hear, and taste. Why would you, right? Why would you go beyond? What, what could be beyond those things? And so I, uh, I've been thinking about the ways that we, we can fight back against the, tem- the, the temptation to ignore what God is doing in our world. And, and one of the tools that we have at our disposal for, for fighting back against the temptation to ignore what God is doing in our world is the tool of prayer. Prayer is, is a key for us to, to, you know, sure we can pray about our nest egg or the drama or the, the hobby du jour. Like, we can pray about those things, but often when we pray about those things, those things, those things uh, make us pray in sort of a superstitious way. Like, we think adding prayer to our nest egg will make our nest egg grow faster. Uh, we, uh, that, that sort of prayer doesn't always break down our focus on what is physical in front of us. And so not all prayer is, is necessarily helpful, but but there is a, a type of prayer, one type of prayer that helps us fight against this. There's probably more than just this one, but one type of prayer that helps us fight against the temptation to be consumed by all that is physical around us is, is praying for and with other people. Uh, prayer, prayer that requires a report, right? Have you, ever, have you ever been asked after you ask somebody to pray, you, you ask somebody to pray and then they ask you, have you ever been asked like, how'd that thing go? Yeah, you have. Uh, if you ask Reagan Garner to pray for you, she will say, how'd that thing go that you asked me to pray about? Uh, she's really good at it. Prayer that uh, requires a report 
it, it draws our hearts away from the small things that we can do on our own, and it calls us toward the ways that God could miraculously, divinely intervene in our world, doing things that, that could never happen in our own human strength. Now, uh, as a pastor, I get prayed for a lot, and thank you. I need it. I, I live on the prayers of, of people praying for me. When our family, we, we served as missionaries, we were prayed for a lot. And I got into the habit during that time of writing a monthly prayer update. And, and I, would, uh, I was amazed. It was remarkable. I, I would try to begin that prayer update every month with praises, with ways that God had answered prayers. And so I would begin by looking at the things that I had asked people to pray about the, the month before. And it turned out, more often than not, that the Lord had worked in ways that I hadn't expected, that God had done things that I couldn't have done on my own, answering the, the very things that I was asking people to pray about a month earlier. It was an incredibly faith-building experience for me. God was, was working in ways that I didn't always see when I was focused on my day-in and day-out physical world, doing, doing the work that was set in front of me, even as a missionary, as, you know, this is like serious religious work, right? Should be pretty focused on what God is doing. But until I would sit down month after month and, and look at what God had done and the things that I had asked people to pray about, I, I often didn't see it on my own. And, and so... I think we're called to, to pray with and for one another. This is one of the reasons we think that people ought to be involved in small groups. Because small groups require us to, to live together and to pray for and with one another. And, and if you're in a small group with someone like Reagan Gardner, you're going to be asked after the fact, how did that thing go that we prayed for you about? And, and it's incredible to see how more often than not, we see God's hand working in ways that we wouldn't have expected. We wouldn't have worked in our own, on our own that, that way. But God does things that, that we couldn't have even known to ask for. Today's story from the life of Abraham that we're looking at, it's a, it's a story of prayer. It's, it's a story of, of Abraham talking to God. It's a story of Abraham's prayer I don't know how effective it is or isn't. But God works and God, God is moved by Abraham's prayer, it appears. So I'm going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18. But I got to touch on Genesis chapter 19. Uh, Genesis 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are two cities that God destroys in the book of Genesis. In, in Genesis 19, it's the story. You can read it. You're welcome to read it while I'm talking, if you'd like. Uh, and, you know, any, any preacher worth his salt has to deal with Genesis 19 if he's going to deal with the story of Abraham. And so, today's the day. You're going to get Genesis 19 just a little bit. It's not the, it's not the story I have for today, but I just got to I got to touch on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah center around Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew who had traveled with him from Haran in the north. 
And we looked at the story last week when Lot and Abraham were so blessed beyond anything they, they deserved, and they had so many possessions that they had to separate. Lot went to the east, it seems like, to the Jordan Valley, and, and it says specifically around the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then after Genesis 14, we really don't hear about Lot until Genesis 19. There's five chapters, four chapters there, where Lot's just completely forgotten. We're focused solely on Abraham. And then Lot comes back into the story in, in Genesis 19. And I'm not, I'm not looking directly at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but this is as close as I'm going to get. And so I want to address specifically God's destructive judgment in this passage. God's smiting of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I, I think from our perspective as, as people who are shaped by the New Testament, uh, this sort of destruction should be troubling. It should, it should cause us to just be a little upset, a little uneasy. And, and we should, I think we should ignore any temptation to, to gloss over the, the incongruency we see. We, we, should be, we should ignore any temptation to just say, yeah, that was so early on, or yeah, that's the Old Testament, or yeah, but, any, any yeah, buts. We should, we should just ignore those if they come into our minds. Because our New Testament-formed minds the, the destruction of, to our New Testament four minds, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it just seems out of step with the character of God that we know. We understand from both the Old and the New Testament that God is completely just, right? And we love God's justice. We, we, are, we are dependent upon God's justice. We are looking forward to God's justice being fully experienced on earth so that we could see the end to some of the injustice that we see in this world. But <laughs> our, our more modern minds and hearts, uh, we would prefer leniency over justice. I, I read an article this week, there's an article this week that's talking about the people who are involved in the Charles Manson murders, they're coming up for parole. And the, the headline of the article says, we want justice for other people in leniency for ourselves. <laughs> I think that describes human nature pretty well, right? We want leniency for us, justice for all you sinners. Uh, and, and, you know, there is, there is that. We, we understand, as, even as folks who are formed by the New Testament and formed by the picture of God's grace in the New Testament, we understand that we are beneficiaries of God's God's holding off on his justice being delivered at every moment, right? We, we know that if God punished every sin the way that Sodom and Gomorrah are punished for their sinners, we would already be ash, right? We, we would have been smoked uh, already. And so we, we appreciate God's leniency with us. We appreciate God's mercy toward us. and We are beneficiaries of it right now and today. And, and then we think about our understanding of, of grace, of God's grace. We are so formed by God's grace, this truth that God treats us better than we deserve. Uh, a, uh, a famous preacher that we've just lost recently, Timothy Keller, 
He says, if in our preaching of grace, we don't begin to sound a little bit like universalists. Universalism says everybody's saved. If in our preaching of grace, we don't begin to sound a little bit like everybody is saved, we're not preaching biblical grace. And, and we are shaped by that kind of grace, that grace that makes us think, well, shoot, maybe God is just going to save everybody. Maybe, maybe that judgment stuff, maybe, maybe God's just going to be really, really gracious. And we know that God is going to be really, really gracious because, you know, we think we are saved. When we, when we take these minds that are so formed by those notions of grace and we confront them with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it makes our heads spin just a little bit. Sodom and Gomorrah, it becomes a code word in the rest of the Bible for God's harshest judgment. Even Jesus says about people who are going to be judged harshly, the religious leaders, he says, it will be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it was for, will be for those people. Sodom and Gomorrah are also held out as examples of like the most flagrant sin uh, in, in the prophets Isaiah and Amos and again in Jesus, they all say that God's people have become like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, even worse sinners than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah is like held up as this particularly bad group of people, these particularly two bad cities. I just want to address the fact that if we're, if we're un, unfair if we're, if we're uncritical as we read the, the story from Genesis 18 and 19, we begin to, it, it's, it would be possible to, an uncritical reading would be possible to say that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is homosexual practice and nothing more. Genesis 18 and 19 don't allow that, though. Uh, Genesis 18, the Lord hears a report of the outcry coming from Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the exact same kind of language that the rest of the Bible uses when it talks about injustice and those who are seeking justice, the oppressed and, and the outcast, crying out to God. That is the kind of outcry that God hears throughout the rest of Scripture. That's the kind of sin that God was going to check out and see if it's as bad as, he see, as he's heard. And then in Genesis 19, the author carefully pits the righteousness of Lot, which is only righteousness in relative terms, let's be honest with ourselves, the righteousness of Lot versus the, the flagrant sin of, of the people of Sodom. Lot offers hospitality to strangers. Hospitality to strangers in the Old Testament, it's sacred. Hospitality throughout the Bible is sacred. It reveals that the character of God is formed in the person offering hospitality. Hospitality was, it's like elevated as one of the, the more important virtues that a person could, could offer. Even Paul in, in Romans 12 says, offer hospitality. It, it, is, it is a sign that the Spirit of God has been formed in a person. Lot's attempt to offer hospitality in Genesis 19 is confronted by the wicked desires of the men of the city to rape his guests. Commentators on this passage uh, point out that even, even among societies that where, where homosexual practice was, was tolerated, which was, was a lot in, 
even in Genesis, like it, it was a common practice. But even, even among those societies, rape is almost always considered uh, punishable by death. And, and so the behavior of the men in, in Sodom is completely out of balance with any societal norms that you could find in Abraham's day. And so the view of the author, the view of the author of Genesis would be that God is pretty well justified in, in meting out his ju- judgment, his punishment on, on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their, their flagrant sin. And, the, and so we confront this like worldview of the, the author of Genesis, like no problem, no problem with God's judgment here with our New Testament mindset. And we ask, we ask, like, was there really no hope of repentance? Like, why didn't, why did God said judging angels instead of, like, an evangelist? Why didn't he send Jonah to, to Sodom and Gomorrah? And we, we have to wonder, like, what, didn't Jesus die for the vilest of sinners? Like, well, where is, where is mercy and grace in this? And I don't, I don't have the answers. <laughs> if I had the answers, we'd have a sermon separate on Genesis 19, but there is no sermon on Genesis 19 coming because I don't have the answers. I don't, I don't know what to do with Genesis 19 except for be unsettled. Be unsettled. Let Scripture confront you and mess with your brain. If, if the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah just doesn't even budge the needle for you, if you think, yeah, those sinners deserve to die, I'd just challenge you to look at the grace of Jesus in the New Testament and try to square that God who, who has no problem wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah with Jesus who says, here I am, let all the sinners, you know, come my way. If, if Sodom and Gomorrah messes with you because you're so formed by God's grace that you wonder how God could ever judge anyone, we got to be unsettled. It's time for being unsettled by recognizing that even our creeds, God is, Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. God, God is just, and, and we have to understand God's nature, not only exclusively in terms of God's grace and mercy, though we certainly are formed by that, but also by the truth that God is just. And God will, will not forever tolerate our sin. So, be unsettled. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Lord bless you. Be unsettled. Well, that's all I know about Genesis 19. Uh, I, I can't gloss over it. I can't just pass over it. And, and uh, if it's, if it's kind of neither here nor there for you, or if you've already been unsettled and you've resettled and I've unsettled you again, sorry. Uh, it's just, uh, we got to do it every once in a while, right? If we want to be Bible-believing Christians, like we, we have to let ourselves just be frustrated by the book every once in a while. It's, maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. Uh, the story we're looking at today, though, it, Genesis 18, it's an interesting story. It begins with the appearance of the Lord. And, and we're grateful for the words of introduction in Genesis 18 
because they, they give some insight that otherwise we might be lost because there's these three mysterious visitors, but the author of Genesis tells us it's the Lord. So let's get into Genesis 18, verses 1 and, one and 2. It, it tells us, The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. Uh, this is after Abraham has had his name changed. So he's no longer Abram. He is Abraham in this story. One day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. So, the three visitors, it's, it's just very mysterious. Uh, we, we really, the author kind of tries to tell us the identity of the three men through the course of Genesis 18, uh, but their, their identity is, is just sort of mysterious. Mo- Abraham sees them as worthy to be bowed down in front of, right? He, he is willing to bow down. He welcomes them as special guests. In verse 22, we'll, we'll read that the author makes a distinction between the two men and the Lord. And so there's, there's this distinction between the two men and the Lord among the three, the three visitors. And the Lord remains and, and stays and talks with, with Abraham while the two men head off in the direction of Sodom. When they appear in Sodom in chapter 19, they are angels, which is the first time they're referred to as angels. So if we put all that together, it's like the Lord traveling with two angels. Maybe it's a little unsettling. Don't really know what to do with it all. In chapter, in chapter 18, though, we get this little introduction. Abraham runs into the tent. He tells Sarah, make a really nice meal. And he sits with them while she's cooking. They tell Abraham while she is cooking, oh, we're going to come back in a year's time and you're going to have your own, your own child. Sarah's going to be the mom. And Sarah can overhear him from where she's working in the tent. And she laughs out loud. And the angels say, or the Lord says, some, someone says, one of the three says, why'd you laugh? And she denies laughing. And then it, the story basically ends with them saying, well, yeah, you did laugh, actually. I heard you. Uh, I'm the Lord. <laughs> you can't lie to me. Uh, and then we get into the story that I'm looking at today. So in, we, we'll, we'll go to Genesis 18, verse 16. So jumping down to verse 16, we read, Then the men got up from their meal and looked out toward Sodom. As they left, Abraham went with them, to, spend, to send them on their way. So this is the beginning of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And it, the, just the mention of Sodom, like you can almost hear in the background when the mention of Sodom comes on, there's just like a light, dun dun. This is sort of an ominous feel that begins to take over the story as, as focus is turned from this experience that Abraham is having with God repeating the promise to Sodom and Gomorrah. Dun, dun. It's, it's eerie. It's scary. And, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And then in the next couple of verses, the Lord speaks. And, and we're left to wonder how this conversation is going down. Like, it sounds like maybe it's a conversation between the three, the three visitors. 
but like we don't know exactly what the stage direction is. Like, is Abraham close enough to hear? How's the author know about this conversation? We don't really know, but this is what it says. In verses 17 through 21, we read, Should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because, of their, sin, because their sin is so flagrant. I am going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. There it is. If you, if you shuddered a little bit at the mention of Sodom in verse 16, your fears were justified in, in these verses. The Lord is going to check things out. He, this, this outcry from the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, this outcry, again, it's, it is related to someone looking for justice. The, early on in Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel, when, when Abel is killed, it is his blood that cries out to God using the same language. It cries out to God looking for justice against his, his murderer, Cain. And, and so the Lord needs to investigate. <laughs> and, and this is a really, like, again, it confronts our notions of a God who knows everything needing to go investigate. How does a God who knows everything an omniscient God who is omnipresent, he is everywhere. Why does God need to walk to Sodom to see? And then, and then the Lord wants to know if the sin is as bad as, as has been reported or not. He, he wants to know, like he's going to bring to justice whoever is reporting all of this bad stuff against Sodom and Gomorrah if it's not true. The, the Lord wants to know. The Lord wants to know. And Abraham reads between the lines, though. Abraham, maybe it's from personal experience in Sodom and Gomorrah that Abraham knows that if the Lord goes and takes a look-see, there's going to be enough evidence to convict the, the folks of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's not going to go well. But Abraham immediately moves to defense. He immediately moves to, to understanding what's going to happen when the Lord sees what's, what's really going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins, begins to jump into action. And maybe it's because his nephew Lot comes to mind. But uh, Abraham jumps into action. We read in verses 22 through 26, the other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. So there was no, no promise of judgment. Uh, 
Abraham just assumes judgment is on its way. And so Abraham begins the project of negotiating for the city. He says, you know, he starts with this, this high number, 50 people. If there's 50 righteous, surely, God, you won't treat those 50 righteous people like you would treat all those wicked people. And it's a number that's high enough that Abraham is just kind of certain that, that God won't destroy the city on behalf of that, that high a number. And, and what Abraham has started here is, is the process of, of intercession. Abraham has begun doing, doing that thing of going between God and someone else and, and speaking to God on their behalf. We, we call it intercessory prayer or intercession. It's, it's that go-between role. Abraham sees himself as someone who's able to, to bend God's ear on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham appeals to God's justice. There's a lot of appeal to God's justice in this, right? Surely, you, just God, you can't do that. You can't treat the righteous and the wicked the same, God. You, you know, far be it from you, right? just God. You can't, you can't act that way. And, and Abraham is probably convinced of Lot's righteousness. Um, and so he wants to make sure that, that Lot is, and his righteousness will spare the city and, and that, uh, e- that, that God won't treat Lot the same way that he'll treat the sinners of the city. And so Abraham begins with this, this high, obvious number, but he starts negotiating. In verses 27 and 28, we see Abraham's tactic. He says, Then Abraham spoke again, Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. You got to love Abraham's self-deprecation there just for a moment. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. According to a seminary professor I had, uh, this type of negotiation is still common in the Middle East. Uh, when, when negotiating for a price, if you come down $5, you're not going to walk away for the deal for $5, right? Surely you're not going to walk away just that small amount. That's what Abraham does. You know, five, it's, it's not 45 or 50, it's, it's just the five. It's just a small amount, God. Surely, surely your justice won't, won't be changed with just, just missing five people. And uh, Abraham seems to have sway with God, and he keeps going. He keeps going. He's going to repeat this pattern four more times. It's six times uh, through the course of this, this story. I'll, I'll read the, the next four. They go quick. In verses 29 through 33, we read, Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. Verse 31, Then Abraham spoke, Since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, Please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. Then the Lord, when the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way 
and Abraham returned to his tent. One commentary I looked at this week said 10 is the final number because anything less than 10, it's not a group, it's individuals. And, and Abraham, maybe he had faith in, in God's justice and, and rightness that God would save individuals. And if it wasn't a group of 10, but God would, would find the individuals. And Abraham's hope, it, it's kind of borne out in Genesis 19 when the Lord delivers Lot and his family, tells Lot, get out of here because the, the city is going to be destroyed. Lot's story goes on to reveal that maybe his family was, was shaped more by the values of Sodom and Gomorrah than by the Lord. Uh, and, and his story in, in 19 and in chapter 20 uh, kind of hair-raising. Um, but my focus today is on Abraham and, and his role here. And, and to fully understand the importance of what Abraham has done in, in Genesis 18 in his negotiation with the Lord, we have to remember all of the promises that were delivered to, to Abraham. It's really easy to remember that Abraham was promised land, right? He was promised land, and we get that promise repeated several times throughout Scripture. It's really easy to remember that he's promised an heir. We, we remember that. That's exactly what that promise is repeated at the beginning of, of Genesis 18. That promise is fresh on our minds. But there's a promise that was delivered to Abraham from the very beginning that if we're not careful, it could kind of like be hidden. It's, it's like it's almost thrown in and, and you, would, you would miss it. You would forget about it. If, if you don't go back every once in a while and reread the promises that God has given. Because God promised Abraham that through his family, every nation in, in the earth would be blessed. That God was going to use Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to the whole, the whole world. This passage, Genesis 18, is the first step that Abraham takes toward fulfilling that promise. This is the first time that Abraham comes out and his actions are, are an attempt to do good on behalf of somebody else. And, and Abraham does this by, by intercession, by intercession, by, by pleading to God on behalf of somebody else. And, and this type of intercession it shows us how to live as heirs of the legacy of Abraham. See, Abraham is, is clearly, clearly aware of God's ability to move in the world. Abraham is staring straight at the face of God, if, if we understand what's happening in this passage. Abraham is, is in God's presence having a conversation with God. And Abraham understands God's ability to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah or not. Abraham understands that, that God can do more than, than what any human being could do. And, and so here we see Abraham intercede on behalf of people who do not realize how close God is and what God could do. The, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were just living their lives. They were just doing what seemed right to them. Maybe the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, even in Abraham's eyes, didn't seem all that worthy of, of God's mercy. But still, 
Abraham intercedes on behalf of the cities for their mercy, for them to receive mercy. So we live shoulder to shoulder with so many people who are consumed by the physical things of this world. Too consumed to concern themselves with the Lord. But we are heirs to the legacy of Abraham. Scripture says that we are Abraham's children. We are called to prayer for those who don't even know their need for prayer. Could you believe that you could change somebody's life who doesn't even know that they need their life changed by praying for them? Imagine what could happen if, if we took seriously this idea that Abraham, Abraham was interceding on behalf of people who just, they didn't deserve it. Abraham said, God, be kind to those people who don't deserve your kindness. What if, what if we became a church of people who just indiscriminately prayed for people who don't deserve it? What if, we, what if we committed as a church to, to reporting our prayers to one another? To saying, I, I'm praying for, for that person. And I'm going to see God's work in their, in their lives. What if we got excited to see how, how God is going to break into our world where people are not looking for it? What if we we became prayer warriors for people who don't, don't have a prayer warrior in their life. And I've been prayed for a lot. I have a lot of prayer warriors in my life. Don't stop praying for me, please. What if we became prayer warriors for, for the guy who's living in his car in my neighborhood? I walk by him a couple times a week. What if we were prayer warriors for, for the people having a bad day? You know, we are often prayer warriors on behalf of the cashier that's getting yelled at. Are we prayer warriors for the person who's having a bad day and yelling? What if we became prayer warriors for people who didn't deserve it? What if we began to see God, God's presence breaking in and doing things that, that we could never do on our own? we began to see his hand moving in ways that, that we didn't even expect. I, I think we, we would be a congregation that we begin to see, to see miracles. I think we'd begin to, to be a congregation that, that's shaping the lives of people around us. God's grace would be, would be at work around us in, in ways that we couldn't control. I think that'd be pretty exciting. Why don't we start? Why don't we begin now by lifting our, our prayers to the Lord? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the example of Abraham who teaches us how to be his children when he prays for those who don't deserve it. 
Lord, I, I get prayed for a lot and I don't think I deserve it. But Lord, there are a lot of people in this world who don't get prayed for at all. People we've never even considered praying for. <laughs> Would you draw them to mind right now? Would you hear our prayers on behalf of some people who don't deserve it, Lord? Thank you for joining us on the First NAS Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person soon at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.